God with all his household, gave alms liberally to the people, and prayed constantly to God. This man was the first Gentile to be baptized. And one of the primary reasons that he received the Holy Spirit was that he gave alms literally. This is another way in which we offer to God logiki latria, and again, one which is not confined to the priesthood, but it is not excluded from our functioning either. And this is very, very important to remember. St. John Chrysostom and other Holy Fathers say that uh, almsgiving is more pleasing to God than prayer and more effective. Almsgiving is referred to as uh, being pleasing to God in that it is a sweet-smelling savor or sweet smell. And whenever you hear that, it's a sacrificial, explicitly sacrificial term. However, I will define almsgiving. It is eleomosini in Greek, which does not mean money exchange. It means the doing of a mercy. And a mercy has to be defined a little. If you are taking care, as many of us are in the baby boomer generation now, of our aging parents, that's not eleomosini. That's not the doing of a mercy. That is the fulfilling of an obligation. If you are f helping uh, other members of your family, that is again fulfilling of an obligation. The uh, eleomosini, or doing of a mercy, is doing for a stranger or for the neighbor, the one in need, from whom you expect to receive no immediate return. You are also not doing it primarily to eliminate poverty. You are giving a sacrifice to God and a well-pleasing sacrifice, and this is logiki latria. That dirty, grubby hand that takes your money or your clothing or whatever you give is a gilded altar. And you are placing your offering in the hands of Christ. And it is truly a most pleasing sacrifice to God and of more value than prayer. And knowing the, the composition of this group, I would add something else very important. And that is that we cannot pray for non-Orthodox during the Divine Liturgy. We cannot remember them. If you are not part of the, the Liturgy and our, everything surrounding the Anaphora is the inner life of the Church itself, this does not mean that we cannot pray for our non-Orthodox family members and friends. It means we cannot do so within the context of the Divine Liturgy. The giving of alms or the doing of a mercy in their behalf is of great value, as is prayer, as is the lighting of candles. These are important ways of intercession but they are not to be identified or made, uh, unless it's very relevant, it's Father. Very relevant. Okay. Uh, since, since Grace is here, uh, 
being a convert parish, most of people come in and they write the intercessions down on the sheet, and then pre-season during the great entrance. So, uh, should I teach my people not to put down non-Orthodox names? There are other. You could, first of all, this is a general pastoral issue, and uh, I'll jump ahead to a little. We have to be very careful. There's a process of education that's involved in all of these things. You don't come in suddenly and make rules. You begin with the process of education through sermons, and it may take months to do something, uh, but to get a, uh, it across, to make them aware. You were shocked when I mentioned what were sins unto death and discussed it. You were shocked last year. You're shocked <laughs> this year. So don't dump it tomorrow, but begin chipping away at the rock. Let them know over a period of time. You didn't know, perhaps, that you're to fast until the ninth hour. Well, don't start making ultimata. Begin by explaining the nature of fasting, the advantages of fasting. Begin by helping people to do so slowly. In this regard, too, I would begin informing them of what is the meaning of the commemoration in the Eucharist, that it is not the same as offering a candle. The offering of a candle is also not valueless, but can be of great value. The saying of a prayer can be of great value. The, uh, and the offering of alms is of tremendous value. Even monks, from the little they had, would in their wills normally will a certain amount to be given to the poor. The mercy meal that we have now was, uh, came from uh, meals that were served to the poor. You're getting them, by giving them this, you're giving an offering to Christ in behalf of the departed. So you begin to inform them gradually, and then you begin after they have a, a sound understanding, and you do too, which is a matter of growing into many ideas. Then after that, then you can begin to put in your bulletin or what I, I list the sins unto death, not that these are prohibitions from you receiving communion, and don't you do it until you, you endanger your eternal soul unless you come to communion and come to confession before and accept your penance and fulfill it. I don't give graphic details about the sexual sins because I don't want to give too many ideas. <laughs> so basically it's, uh, you know, adultery and other serious sexual sins. But the rest I do. But this is so that people will, but this is after years of explaining uh, gradually what it is. So, um, and people do understand that now. I can't say that they always obey it, but they, they do understand it. So you don't go tossing this out right away. That's, that's a general rule as far as all of this goes. But it also doesn't mean that you ignore it. Okay. Now, the giving of alms or the doing of a mercy is an extremely important thing. And it doesn't matter entirely about the worthiness, although it is best that your resources be given where they will be useful. The other we are called to have, and I don't know that this is a unique way of offering the, uh, it, uh, it kind of blends into everything else, is uh, that we have a pure heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This purity of heart is, again, something 
of course, which priests ought to be ordained priests, but we are not, it's not exclusively a goal. We are all called to perfection. Now, the forgiveness of sins, I mentioned a way in which this is exercised by the, uh, and within the Ieratema, by extraordinary figures, confessors and ascetics who are mature in the spiritual life, uh, men of God, as Origen says. But it can be exercised by each and every Christian in a sense, too which is the forgiveness of those sins which have been committed against you. And if you forgive someone who has hurt you, someone who has wronged you, then Christ will forgive him as well. And it's very important that on this level, this isn't you can forgive him for something he did to somebody else, but as, an or, as a regular Christian, part of the Eratema, you can forgive sins for committed against you, and in a sense, exercise priestly power of binding and loosing there, on that level only. That's, um, that's really something when you think about that in terms of the Pharisees' response to Jesus, um, forgiving sins, say that only God can forgive sins, and then we tell the faithful, you know, you can too now. <laughs> this is a gift of Christ. We share in his high priesthood. So this is a very, very important thing to do. And I would, uh, yes? With regard to a, a sin unto death, adultery, what bearing does it have to say if a man commits adultery, his wife's forgiveness or lack thereof in terms of imposition of a penance to him? It doesn't because sins unto death are of a different character. They have an objective character that harms the church. So whether, whether it's, it's even if it's done, even if it's not done knowingly, they have a character which, which by its nature damages, wounds the body of Christ, the whole body of Christ. So in that case, the wife may choose to keep her husband, straying husband, or vice versa. And they may forgive one another, but it doesn't have. That's that's not on the same level. I'm glad you brought that up. Not on that level, no. Consequences, mm. no, not just consequences, but something ontological. Sins unto yes, sins unto death by their nature wound the body of Christ, the whole body of Christ. They are not just a matter of of a disagreement uh, or a problem between within the marriage. And on that, and I'm not going to go into too much, but I'll just throw this out because I was asked this the other, last night. In the case of a priest whose wife commits adultery, by the canons he has two choices. He can divorce her and remain a priest. He can remain with her and deposed from the priesthood. He is obliged to divorce her or to leave the priesthood. That is because, again, the purity requirements. So that's something which is very objective in that area. Needless to say, if the priest has committed adultery himself, he is to be deposed. But that's a different that, you know, and if his wife forgives him, it does. Sorry, guys, it doesn't work. <laughs> Not at that level. 
Yes. Um, regarding the uh, the priest against whom somebody has uh, sinned or some wrong has been done against the priest, uh, is it possible to forgive that if the person has not who's done the hurting has not asked for the forgiveness? It can have great effect even if he hasn't done so. But that means that you forgive him really, really deeply in your heart, which is not always easy to do. If you have uh, someone who, for instance, has really been a pain, and we've all at one point or another had such people, who was out to get you, no matter what you did or, or, or didn't do, um, if you forgive that person, it can move him to forgiveness. It can also bring about his repentance. And of course, this isn't something you stand up and absolve him. It's, it's he sees in the way you conduct yourself toward him. Now, that's not automatic. Many people are hard-hearted. Uh, I'll give you a little example. This week, I, I think, is it tomorrow? I'm not sure. We celebrate St. Nicephorus. And I was very struck when I read, I was, I was putting in the bulletin, The Lives of the Saints, and I read his, and I was very struck by it, because St. Nicephorus was a pagan who had a, a befriended a Christian priest. This is in the first three centuries. And something happened, as does in friendships. Uh, something was done, I don't know, and they... Be, enmity developed. The devil sowed the seeds of enmity. And there was real bitterness. But Nicephorus began to wish for the friendship of his old friend. And he went to him, and the priest rebuffed his, his efforts, would not accept him. Well, sometime later, Nicephorus heard that the priest had been arrested as a Christian. So through intermediaries, he requested a reconciliation. Again, he was rebuffed. Finally, he had heard that the priest was, had successfully undergone torture and stood faithful in his witness to Christ and was now being taken to be executed. And he went and knew that this was his last chance, and he threw himself down on his knees before the priest and he begged his forgiveness, and the priest refused. So at that point, the Holy Spirit left him, he, the priest, and he renounced Christ, lost the crown, and St. Nicephorus confessed Christ and was baptized in his blood. So the power of forgiveness is great. I, and here we have a case of a pagan. So the power of forgiveness is very great. In his own blood. In other words, he was, his confession, his moment of baptism was his, uh, moment of death was his baptism. Okay. Um, <clears throat> another way is in which we exercise this gift of uh, this Logiki Latria 
is we can forgive, or rather we can defend those who are wronged. This is a message which comes up time and time again about the, um, the uh, prophets, about the widows and orphans especially that were mentioned. This can also be done through, uh, you know, making a clear stand against abortion, I would say, is a very legitimate way of exercising this. Not blowing up clinics, but making a clear stand for the innocent, and in this case, totally defenseless. But there are other ways in which the poor, or the needy, um, those who are, are being wronged and against whom injustice is being committed. And I'm not talking about a political, you know, uh, um, what, do, what do they call it? Um, human rights platform. I'm talking about people one-on-one -on -one that you know, and circumstances that you know, where you can intervene in a helpful and positive way. Um, another way is to convert a brother who has gone astray. I look out at my parish on a Sunday morning, and this is upstate New York, where unfortunately uh, the taxing structure has meant there's, a, there's been an exodus, and so consequently there's an awful lot of gray hair out there. And yet there are very few of their children, and they haven't all moved away. They've drifted off into whatever, you know, pro Protestantism, Catholicism, through marriages mostly. And the parents never raised a voice of opposition. Just let it happen. There is a way in which we exercise logiki latria by trying to draw those people back. And in general, our conduct is perhaps more eloquent sermon than our words. And if it's not a matter of convincing them to switch their team loyalty. It's a matter of letting them see that we truly, being an Orthodox Christian, makes a difference. We do reflect the kingdom of heaven. We do have different goals. And not only that our worship is pretty, but in the style of our life, in the manner of our, of our carriage, that we lead those of our own who have gone astray, either to other churches or to a way of life which is uh, beyond and outside the church and which ignores the church or is hostile to the church. A quiet witness is often very effective. The uh, older cities that uh, Father Paul mentioned they have often been eloquent witnesses who perhaps were not always capable of speaking so eloquently, but their life, their, their observed commitment to God has been like a magnet drawing their family and other people as well. So this is a way, and to convert those who are outside the faith can also often be done by observing the way of life of Christians. We often look, for instance, at some of the Amish and think of them as very, very honest, scrupulously honest people. This is true, this was true in Russia in regard to the old believers 
who ended up being the bankers of Russia very often because they were so scrupulously honest and everybody knew it and trusted them. Well, wouldn't it be nice if we had a reputation in our communities, not because we do bizarre, ancient, and colorful rites, but because the quality of our life makes us stand out. Don't you think that would have an effect? The early Christians did not stand on street corners, and this brings up the subject of missions. The early Christians didn't, there are very few instances outside the immediate apostolic age where that's documented. Then how did the church grow and spread? What missionary tools did she use? All the documents say that the pagans say, see how the Christians love one another. That's one thing. And see how, and that meant, for one thing, that wasn't just because they liked each other and they were friends. It meant that in the Greco-Roman world, they had a very, very developed uh, system of uh, care for one another. Financially, they took care of their poor and their needy. I remember hearing a um, history professor in Greece. He was a, it was an American series. It was a very, very well done one on the development of, of, uh, um, of uh, Western civilization. And he listed as one of the major reasons for the church's triumph was that in the second and third centuries, the local Christian bishop was known for being so careful and solicitous, for both for his own and even for others, in taking care of them, seeing to their needs. Whereas the local Roman officials were extremely rapacious, but the Christians were, didn't conduct themselves that way. They took care of their own. They helped their own. They sought to food and clothing. A great deal of the resources of the church were directed in that way. And that had an impression. They knew that they could trust the church. The other thing was see how the Christians do not fear death. Time and time again, we read in the lives of the saints of martyrdoms which have been the occasion of the conversion of thousands. Not necessarily because what the martyr said, except I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that he is the true Lord and King. And that was the occasion of the conversion of thousands. The blood of the martyrs was the most eloquent mission statement which has ever been made and the most effective. Another which has not in that early, well, somewhat in that early age is the working of miracles. That comes because people have grown in the spirit have attained maturity, and have been gifted by the Holy Spirit, have approximated or come as close as possible to the ideal of perfection. It should be very clearly remembered 
that there was no, uh, I was reading a book, um, a very good book, uh, The Sacrament of Orders, which is a collection of articles at a conference given on the priesthood. Obviously, it had something to do with preparation. And uh, in there, there was a long discussion. Someone raises the question about the fathers and missions. And they all sit and look at one another and say, there is no activity associated with the priest and missions. There's no documented philosophy of missions. And they were not the missionaries. They're concerned with pastoral care for their own, yes, and for the church, that they are. But the great fathers that we talk about were not concerned with missions and did not involve themselves, let me put it that way, as far as the missionary expansion of the church. Then how did she spread? And spread she did. She spread because of the layman. It was they who chiefly won over the Roman world, not us, guys. It was the layman who did it by the quality of their life, by their interaction with their friends and their neighbors, by their uh, dealings in the marketplace. They won others. Now, once they, they had done that, once they brought the person to the church, then we took over with the education and the preparation. I'll talk more about that later. But the essential contact and the draw was through the Ieratema, not through the Ierosini. It applied to all Christians and could be exercised by one and all. I think that's very important to remember in our present situation. We tend, again, to think that all of these gifts are exclusively our responsibility or our prerogative, and they are not. Now, there were instances when a more active role was taken in a clerical, by clerical figures. This is especially true in the missions, to, in the conversion of the Slavs. Uh, and many of the subsequent missions. But again, much of the mission, especially within kind of what we might call domestic mission, did not take place with the guidance or, or with the uh, uh, active involvement of the clergy, ordained clergy. It's something we kind of forget. And the modern missionary movements as such really spring from uh, colonialism fundamentally. And until that time, I mean, for instance, Protestantism was a Northern European phenomenon exclusively, and suddenly it kind of, but it was because of colonial expansion more than a great missionary. It kind of went along with it, but it was uh, part of the national expansion, colonial expansion. All right, these are various ways, and there are others, I'm sure, that I haven't gone into, but I thought, given that today we hear so much of the whole issue of women's ordination. We hear so much of different rights of different groups, lay rights, this and that. I thought it very, very important that before we discuss our role, we see that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are not confined to us. We are not the ones who alone offer the Logiki Latria. It is the common work 
of the Vasilion Ieratima. It is the common work of all of us. And if there is, and there is an elite and a, a, it, within the church, it is not synonymous necessarily with the ordained priesthood. And it's very important we remember that. The church is not the place for a power paradigm. And I remember Father Alexander Schmemann always saying, the church cannot accept the world's agenda. And he was very right in that. So I wanted to put all of this in context. Uh, if you have any further reflections on this before we move more into our own kind of realm, I think they might be useful. But I think this, this was very important because I've, I've recently confronted several times feminists <coughs> And uh, I refuse to defend the faith of the church and her life, only to clarify that I'm not going to debate you on this point because you're not accepting the criteria of the church and we're not going to talk about it. It's like answering the question, who's, are you saved? The question is the problem, not your answer. So you have to be very, very careful. So you can qualify in saying it's not legitimate to have a power paradigm and so forth, and it really isn't. But uh, you have to, but don't engage. That, that's a mistake. Across the board, but the priest doesn't have to, the priest is, is certainly called to a higher level of purity and holiness than our others. The call to perfection is true of all of us. But I remember reading one of the uh, lives of the saints wherein. Um, it was, or, I'm sorry, council said, whereas the job of the monk is to say, the, is to engage in ceaseless prayer, namely, especially through the Jesus prayer, that is not the job of the priest. The priest's major way and responsibility is intercession for those entrusted to his care. And it is more important that he, that's his level of functioning, that's what's important, that he do that. So in, in, we do do things in a different way. Okay, but the common, uh, what I'm, the, this logiki latria is offered by all of us as kings and priests. And of course, more responsible, though perhaps differently executed by us. Yes. What I was thinking is, if, if the people are to learn rational worship, then obviously they should be looking to the priest for their role models. Yes, in well, our culture, this is a very important thing. I mentioned it before, but it bears repeating. If you are in Greece or Russia, well, Russia's uh, and the former communist countries are still trying to recover their orthodox culture. Greece and Cyprus, of course, have it. It doesn't matter that, that the priest in the village is a, is, a, is a bumpkin and barely literate and doesn't live according to the standards of the church in, in as far as the edification of the faithful. In the first place, in the public school, they're taught the faith. They have regular classes, and if they don't pass it, they don't pass the year. So they have that. Everybody for 12 years gets education in the Orthodox faith. They furthermore have the example of uh, their the members within the family 
who are involved actively in the church, who do visit monasteries. Perhaps they have gone to monasteries themselves. They turn on the television. Uh, during uh, Holy Week, they have uh, playing every biblical or semi-biblical movie that's ever been done around uh, the clock. And in addition, there are at least every morning and evening Holy Week services are broadcast from at least three different sites and churches and cathedrals or monasteries for people to turn to. So you have that. The national holidays are religious in character. The local news program begins by greeting those who are celebrating St. Paphnutius today and so forth. So, I mean, you're bombarded from all angles. Any public or civic occasion, the clergy are there. The parliament is sworn in by, uh, in the name of the holy consubstantial life giving an undivided trinity at the end of a um, service of blessing of waters conducted by the archbishop. And if there was one Muslim delegate, and I've seen this, he had to swear his loyalty on the Quran in Arabic. But, uh, and all members of the parliament, you see it on television, they take their oath of loyalty on the gospel book in front of the archbishop. So, I mean, in, in this environment, obviously, you're not solely dependent upon the local parish priest. He may be an absolute boob, but you know he's a boob, and you kind of let it go in one ear and out the other. Uh, with us, in our situation, we are the sole conveyors of tradition. And there are, very, there are very few of those, there are very, very, very few of those old cities and uh, so forth left. Uh, and by this time, many of them are, are beyond that. They're, they're just older people now. You don't have that kind of quality that you did at one time. They don't even dress like it, you know. And, and that's true abroad, too, I'll tell you. You, know, you used to hit 30, and if you're lucky enough, one of the male members somewhere in your family has died, so you can put on the requisite black and wear your, you know, and be a distinctive figure and a kind of venerable figure, look like an ant. But I'm not talking A-U-N-T either. But, uh, and in the village have some kind of status. But that's not the case anymore. Somebody dies, you do it for a, a while, and then you turn your bright, ordinary wear, and, and the older ladies don't dress so differently than everybody else. So anyway, it's, it's exclusively our job to convey the tradition. In that light, um, you talked about how we're, as priests, held responsible for uh, the, the penance that is given. Mm -hmm. And failure in that area would be attributed to us. What about in this area of rational worship, where we're called to be role models, we're called to be examples to the And if our example fails, is that uh, and the people follow our example? If we ignore our families, and they end up ignoring their families, if we drink too much and, and tell dirty jokes all the time and they follow suit, uh, you're accountable. Now, there, you have to remember that um, perhaps the people aren't willing to be led or don't want to be led. That's a different matter. That's their responsibility. Or perhaps, you know, it's uh, their hearts are hardened, you know, and you, you could use a sledgehammer and you're never going to get through. Because <laughs> they just, just don't. Uh, one of my closest friends, the Greek priest in the 
parish in, uh, right near me, um, Father Stephen Lilly, he uh, was telling me he was very proud. He loves to study uh, scriptural uh, commentaries by the fathers, and he reads them in Greek and English. He's a convert, though. And um, so he uh, was, works very hard. I mean, when he has his Bible study, it's all day. He's busy all day. I can't even call him. And he's locked away. Even his children can't get at him. And he spends all the day, you know, culling the, uh, the church fathers, reading their commentaries. And this is for one chapter. And, you know, he's so happy. He has 12 people there, you know, and they're there all the time. And their questions are relevant. And he's really, really excited. Then he calls me one day after one of these. And he said, I'm so discouraged. I said, why? He said, well... You know, they had that show, the first, the Christianity, the first thousand years. And so they decided to discuss that a little bit. And they're saying, well, I think it's right, Christianity, Christianity we have to be tolerant that, you know, they're, they're good people. The Jews are good people. The pagans are good people. You know, what, isn't Christianity a little intolerant? He said, they only missed all of that work, and they only missed the basic point that Jesus makes a difference. So what does it matter that they know all of this stuff? So uh, sometimes you can you know, try all your efforts, drain all your energies, and it may be for naught. But you will be judged on how well you have done so. If you have neglected to do so, then you will be responsible. If you, have done, if you have misled, you will be responsible. But if they refuse to be led toward the truth, will, and their hearts are hardened and their eyes are, are closed, that is their responsibility. Yes? It puts me in mind of the passage from Hebrews where the writer of the letter to the Hebrews exhorts the hearers or readers to submit to their leaders um, so that their leaders may do their duty with joy and not with sorrow. The presumption uh -huh. is that they're going to do their duty whether they have people submit to them or not. It's going to be done. And if people do hear and they're not hard-hearted or their hearts soften by God's grace, then there's joy in the duty. And if not, then it's done with sorrow. Uh -huh. Okay, any other questions in regard to the Logiki Latria and what's involved? No, five minutes? Well, okay, well, that's a good time for any questions throughout. When we pray that in the liturgy about the rational service, what is the specific meaning of that rational? Well, the, the phrase comes from Scripture, and in the scriptural context, I don't have it here right in front of me. I did read it to you last time. Um, it, it, it talks about the, our bodies. And so really, it isn't and should not be understood narrowly or exclusively about the Eucharist. Of course, when we as the church gather, we are, in that case, the rational worship we are offering is indeed the divine liturgy. And we do all offer that. That is true. Would you read it? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, fully acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Thank you very much.
rational reasonable. It's logiki latria. But as you see, it is not specifically or exclusively the divine liturgy. And I wanted to also make it clear that, you know, our priestly worship or, or the priesthood is not confined to the altar. And the sacrifice is done in other ways, in very, very significant and important ways. Yes, in the Ford's book on the lives of married saints, some of you have seen that the Green Book, they make the point that when you study the lives of married saints who live in the world, that the one characteristic that's true of all of them is almsgiving. Just as the is what? Is almsgiving. That just as the monastic saints, you know, the one thing is that strict asceticism, when those who live in the world, all of the lives of all the married saints or saints in the world have that. They different things, but they all have mm -hmm. That's a very good point. So that's something that is often, you know, either rejected or put in the terms of, you know, the New World Order and, uh, you know, eliminating poverty worldwide and everything. And that's not true. In a sense, God forbid we should eliminate the poor because we don't have then anyone to accept our alms. And we're deprived. <laughs> I think there are a few priests I've known, and at certain phases of my life I've been in that situation myself, so I know where I speak. <laughs> Therefore, my brothers, I implore you by God's mercy to offer your very selves to you a living sacrifice. The word reasonable doesn't appear. Which is, which, what is that? New English Bible? Yeah. Well, yes, that's, that way we eliminate all of those unfortunate things, get out all the blood and gore and all of yeah. the that's responsibilities. Right. Yeah, just kind of... That's, that's what it is, Loki Yeah. Which is your reasonable service. Yeah. that's, uh, it means literally worship. It doesn't mean service, no. I would mention one little aside, you know, people talk about divine liturgy. If you go to Greece, you'll see all over the place people are very surprised because you go to a store and it says, Ores dis liturgias, you know, the hours of liturgy. And it doesn't mean they're having divine liturgy in the back room. The word liturgine does not mean work of the people. It means public work, okay, of which the divine liturgy is one, but more commonly, the word used in the earlier centuries was synaxis, or the gathering. It's had a variety of designations. Divine liturgy is one of those, but we should be aware that it means a public service is really what all that it means. And sometimes it can just be translated as service. Father, was there anyone else who uh, had questions? Yes, Father. When you were mentioning the tithes regarding the, uh, the priesthood of the temple, how is that realized in the church? <laughs> to the priest. Uh, well, that's a whole other subject that I will not really take up, but I will just say that um, this is not the traditional way in which the church has been, uh, has been supported. Uh, from time to time in the patristic text, they will cite it for people's responsibilities toward the church and say, well, they did that, this was a given there. But it isn't how the church was supported. The church is supported in, in traditional Orthodox countries by land, 
The church, for instance, the Church of Greece is extremely wealthy and has no idea even how much land it owns. Uh, because this has been given in alms over the years, centuries. People have given their homes. It, it, I've seen it, people come into the office, you know, and they'll will their home to the church. Their apartment, you know, becomes the church's property. And that is how the church has, has managed. Downtown Beirut belongs to the Archdiocese of Beirut. Does it not say that? And Trinity Episcopal Church owns Wall Street. <laughs> so basically, it's, it's not really... Because for one thing, the church has needed to have more than merely to keep the doors open. Because she has had to be able to give money to clothe the naked, to feed the poor, etc. Both her own and in the world on the whole. And she, uh, so it, it hasn't been this idea of free will offerings is either free will offerings or people giving by tithes is a kind of almost uniquely American phenomenon. Not exclusively, Father. Most downtown big churches, Protestant and Catholic, that have been around for years have very, very substantial endowments. I know in one Episcopal church where my brother's involved, um, there was a discussion in the vestry meeting about something that one of the priests had presented uh, something to be done, and it was not covered by the budget. He was a little worried about it. Well, one of the vestrymen said, well, don't worry, because uh, we'll take it out of the emergency fund, so it'll be all right. And he said, by the way, how much money is there in the emergency fund? And he said, two and a half million dollars. <laughs> This is a church that now has a handful of people on a Sunday morning. But this is how they did it. Because this is money that has been given over time, houses, property, etc. It's a good way to have your, encourage your people to do wills, make out wills with the beneficiary, the church. Because this is also a way of doing a mercy. And it's been a very important one through the church's life. Use against spiritual pride because I have uh, almost entirely convert parish, and I occasionally get people talking about the noetic and theosis, and I, and I would like to come back and say, "Don't talk to me about that stuff until you tithe. Until you're serious well, about your pocket, no, there is, don't tell me about there, spiritual." The principle has always been that not that you give your fair share or equal share, but rather that those again, the wealthy, the have who have the means, give generously to the church and support it with the building of monasteries, churches. Those weren't built by, in, now they are, but they weren't always built by individual donations. They were built often by, uh, most often by, by the princes, the nobility, the wealthy, wealthy merchants would consider it their responsibility. And in this society, many of the hospitals and so forth were donated by wealthy people. And as I've said to my own people, whenever you read the, the, hum, the parable where of uh, the camel going through the eye of a needle and where you can say, oh, well, I'm not wealthy. Do you have food, reasonable expectation of three squares in a day? Do you have a roof over your head? Do you have clothes sufficient for the weather? In that case, as the world measures wealth, you're wealthy. So that this applies to all of us. And therefore, 
our responsibility to give to the church the church may give forth is very great. I agree. Anyway, see you now.